You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Hugo, Rostan, Hernani, and How to Be a Romantic by Lisa Van Dam. So, yes, the title of my talk is How to Be a Romantic. If you read it in your printed material, it says How to Be Romantic, <laughs> which was my mistake and not Anu's, I discovered when I went back to my email with the title. So when Leonard Peikoff heard about the error, he said you were going to accuse me of a bait and switch. <laughs> and some of you were going to want to leave. But he also got to hear a preview of the lecture and sweetly offered to write a review to reassure you that you wouldn't be disappointed with the actual topic. <laughs> so with that disclaimer, good morning. I want our time together to feel less like you are attending a lecture and more like you're being taken on a time-traveling literary tour. It is a tour in three parts, and it will start in the 19th century in Paris at the Comédie Française. The illustrious Comédie Française is the world's longest established national theater. It was founded in 1680 with a grant from King Louis XIV and originally directed by Moliere, France's most esteemed playwright. It began as a traveling troupe of actors, but in 1799, it found a permanent home in the majestic Salle Richelieu. Napoleon Bonaparte insisted it maintain the classical repertoire of such authors as Moliere, Corneille, and Racine. Like the Royal Shakespeare Company in Britain, the Comédie Française set the standard for anyone who was serious about theater. With its classical columns, cream-colored stonework, sparkling chandeliers, golden staircases, and plush red velvet seating, the theater set a stage of dignity and elegant opulence. In the early 19th century, men in attendance at its performances would have been seen wearing swallowtail coats, black silk vests, starched neckties, and standing collars. In the words of drama critic William Hazlitt, after he attended a performance of Racine at the Comédie Française, quote, there was a professional air, an unvarying gravity in the looks and demeanor of the whole assembled multitude, as if everyone had an immediate interest in the character of the national poetry. Not only was the strictest silence observed as soon as the curtain drew up, but no one moved or attempted to move, unquote. This would not be true on the night of February 25th, 1830. That evening's play was to begin at 7, but by 1 o'clock, a crowd had already gathered outside the theater, blocking the Rue Richelieu. There were no starched collars in this congregation. Instead, it was, in the words of Mary Agnes Robinson, an assembly of several hundred shaggy and magnificent men some in cloaks and sombreros, some in striped and high-collared waistcoats a la Robespierre, some, like the handsome Théophile Gautier, a young poet, in scarlet satin. In brief, a motley carnival of youth, art, and enthusiasm. The descent of this crowd on the theater had the character of an attack, and it was countered with defenses. Theater employees stationed themselves on the roof and pelted the queue with waste from the Comédie Française kitchens. 
Apparently, the great French novelist Honoré de Balzac was struck with a stalk of cauliflower. <laughs> At three o'clock, the doors were opened and the rabble were let in. Here is how writer Graham Robb describes the scene inside. Quote, they had come equipped with bread, sausages, cheese, chocolate sticks, and oranges. They sang subversive songs, discussed the lines that would have to be cheered to victory, and, according to the fantasies of people who were not there, fornicated with their working-class girlfriends. <laughs> the usherettes who held the keys to the toilets did not arrive for work until shortly before the performance. Uh, so, undaunted, the crowd dined at five, spread out over the seats like banqueting Romans, then wandered off into dark corners. They were still eating when the rest of the audience began to trickle in, filling up the boxes, their slippers and evening dresses trailing through something moist and pungent. <laughs> and the swallow-tailed and evening-dressed contingent did still come. In the weeks prior, while this play was being rehearsed, newspapers hostile to it had gone so far as to employ spies to enter by stealth into the hall of the lecture or to listen at the doors, and then use the information they obtained to ridicule the drama and predispose the public against it. A cabal of conservatives had petitioned the king to ban the play from the stage. A truculent old ticket lady had been hawking tickets to the author's enemies, trying to drum up a crowd that would hiss the play into silence. At the stroke of seven, while the playwright watched from the wings, quote, the curtain went up and the play began before two publics absolutely hostile. The public of the boxes with its white shoulders, its diamonds and its good taste, and the public of the parterre and the gallery with its shaggy locks and its startling incoherences." Unquote. That is Mary Robinson's description of the antagonists in what would be known as the Battle of Ernani, the debut of the play Ernani by Victor Hugo. This battle requires a backstory. I'll begin the story when Hugo was a 14-year-old schoolboy, and a teacher who had branded him a troublemaker confiscated Hugo's private journal. The journal contained, among other things, an unflattering character sketch of that teacher, <laughs> and a declaration by young Hugo that would become famous when he did. It said, I want to be Chateaubriand or nothing. Chateaubriand is known as the father of French Romanticism. Despite being a royalist, a Catholic, and apparently the man who coined the term conservative, he held a peculiar fascination for the young artists of his time, who looked to him also as a man of principle, a defender of freedom of the press, and an independent thinker. According to essayist Alex Andrias, quote, Adolescent identification with this tragic master of melancholy who'd spent seven years of the 1790s exiled in England while several members of his family were guillotined under the reign of terror drove many young romantics to a kind of madness, unquote. I think the story that best captures the spirit of this romantic madness is an episode in the life of Hugo's contemporary, Lamartine. A 25-year-old Lamartine would travel to the forest where Chateaubriand was reputed to live, 
and skulk around, hoping merely to catch a glimpse of his hero. When he discovered Chateaubriand's home and found it surrounded by a wall, he climbed into a tree into which he could, from which he could overlook the property and stayed there from noon until night, but with no success. So he returned the next day to do it all again, and this time his ambitions were realized. Here is how he would later describe the moment in his memoirs. Half the afternoon elapsed in the same silence and disappointment as the afternoon before. Finally, at sunset, the door of the little house turned slowly and noiselessly on its hinges. A short man in black clothes with broad shoulders, skinny legs, and a noble head emerged, followed by a cat to whom he threw balls of bread to make it gamble on the grass. Soon, both cat and man were swallowed by the shadows of an alley of trees. The undergrowth hid them from my sight. A moment later, the black clothes reappeared at the threshold of the house and locked the door. This was all I saw of the author of René, but it was enough to satisfy my poetic superstitions. I went back to Paris dizzy with literary glory. Dizzy with literary glory from a glimpse of a short, skinny-legged man playing with his cat. That's my kind of guy. <laughs> Chateaubriand, as I said, is thought of as the first of the French romantics. But there's little scholarly consensus on how this early romanticism ought to be defined. Here, as described in A History of Modern France, are some of its elements. It judged literature without any reference to the rules, or to the governing, governing taste of the time. It described nature with the knowledge of a first-hand observer and with the imagination of a poet. It gave full play to the passionate demands of individualism. And it was written in an enchanting style which was warmed by emotion and heightened by imagination and which moved with an easy freedom. So, rebellion against the rules imaginative descriptions, passionate individualism, and freedom of expression. These were some of the elements of early Romanticism. Chateaubriand's writings were among the first flickers of Romanticism in French literature. Hugo would later take up that torch and turn those flickers into a conflagration. It began with his thunderous preface to Cromwell. Cromwell was the first of Hugo's plays ever to be produced, but the stage would be stolen by its preface. It was not just the preface to a play, it was the manifesto of a movement. Hugo, says Rob, had with his preface, quote, provided the romantic movement with the magisterial text which, according to Théophile Gautier, shone in our eyes like the tablets of the law on Mount Sinai. The preface to Cromwell, published on 5th of, the De of December, 1827, was the codification of the precepts, the hoisting of the romantic flag, the hors d'oeuvre of an unperformable play which turned into the main course." Unquote. Rob calls it the most influential aesthetic treatise of the century. To summarize Hugo's preface is no simpler a task than defining early French Romanticism. Rob calls it a cruel joke that centuries of students have been asked to study its collection of tenets and try to come up with a coherent description. I'm not going to take on that task. 
I'll just highlight some of the elements that make this work the standard bearer for the Romantic movement, and some that are just my personal favorites. As context, it's important to know that Romanticism was, in part, a reactionary movement against the dogmas of classicism. The theater, and especially its paragon, the Comédie Française, was subject to strict rules of composition that it was, at the time, considered a sacrilege to violate. For instance, playwrights were obliged to observe the three unities of time, place, and plot. There could be only one central action, it had to take place in a single physical location, and it could occur over a period of no more than one day. In 1809, playwright Le Mercier staged his Christophe Colomb, which subverted the unity of place principle by setting its action within the single location of a ship that, over the course of the action, traveled several thousand miles. This apparently caused such an outrage that the actors had to perform behind a line of soldiers, and eventually the theater had to be evacuated by the National Guard. Additionally, only certain subjects were considered proper for a play. Their stories had to be either drawn from antiquity, legend, or the Bible. So when the young poet Briefaut wrote a tragedy set in Spain, and the Bureau of Censorship opposed it, he had only to transport the action from Barcelona to Babylon, which both satisfied the rules for subject and conveniently maintained the, reader, the, the meter and the rhyme. And then his play was deemed acceptable. The theater also had to conform to a strict code of decorum. Tragedy, which treated royalty and nobility, and comedy, which dealt with the middle and lower classes, were never to be mixed. All plays were required to teach a moral lesson, and their themes had to be drawn from a stock list of conventional ideals. Poetic justice always had to be served, with the good rewarded and the wicked punished. Only the most elevated language was allowed, and verse plays were expected to follow absolute rules of meter and rhyme. Chateaubriand, with his defiance of codified rules, his emphasis on individualism, and the free play he gave to emotion and imagination, had begun challenging the code of classicism and making room for the romantics. Hugo's preface to Cromwell would kick down the door. It was a fight for nothing less than, in Hugo's own words, liberalism in literature. It's tempting to spend far too much time quoting directly from the preface to Cromwell. It's certainly a topic that deserves a lecture of its own. But I'm going to restrict myself to giving you the flavor of it with a few choice selections. On the topic of unity of place, the requirement that all the action occur in a single location, Hugo says, quote, the result is that everything that is too characteristic, too intimate, too local to happen in the antechamber or on the street corner, that is to say, the whole drama, takes place in the wings. We see on the stage only the elbows of the plot, so to speak. Its hands are somewhere else. Instead of scenes, we have narrative. Instead of tableaus, descriptions. Solemn-faced characters placed, as in the old chorus, between the drama and ourselves, tell us what is happening in the temple, in the palace, or in the public square, until we are tempted many a time to call out to them, indeed, then take us there. It must be very entertaining. 
unquote. <laughs> unity of time, Hugo says, rests on no firmer foundation than unity of place. Quote, a plot forcibly confined within 24 hours is as absurd as one confined within a peristyle. Every plot has its proper duration as well as its proper place. Think of administering the same dose of time to all events, of applying the same measure to everything. You would laugh at a cobbler who should attempt to put the sh same shoe on every foot. These, he says, are the wretched quibbles with which mediocrity, envy, and routine has pestered genius for two centuries past. Their wings have been clipped with the scissors of the unities." Unquote. In regard to unity of plot, Hugo says, well, yes, of course. That unity, he says, is as essential as the others are useless. But, he says, quote, let us be careful not to confound unity with simplicity of plot. The former does not in any way exclude the secondary plots on which the principal plot may depend. It is necessary only that these parts, being skillfully subordinated to the general plan, shall tend constantly toward the central plot and group themselves about it at the various stages, or rather, on the various levels of the drama." Unquote. Here is the spirit of the preface in summary, a rallying cry to summon an army of romantics. Quote, let us then speak boldly. The time for it has come, and it would be strange if, in this age of liberty, in this age, liberty, like the light, should penetrate everywhere except to the one place where freedom is most natural, the domain of thought. Let us take the hammer to theories and poetic systems. Let us throw down the old plastering that conceals the facade of art. There are neither rules nor models, or rather, there are no other rules than the general laws of nature, which soar above the whole field of art." Unquote. There are no rules or models. There are only the laws of nature. But Hugo was no advocate of naturalism, the notion that art must reflect life as it is, in all its spiritless and commonplace details, without the, dis the focusing lens of ideals. For Hugo, classicism and naturalism present a false dichotomy, which, were they the only alternatives, would be the death of art. Here's how Hugo differentiates naturalism from romanticism. Quote, it's, I already know, I have such reverence for these words, I have to pause to read them. It seems to us that someone has already said that the drama is a mirror wherein nature is reflected. But if it be an ordinary mirror, a smooth and polished surface, it will give only a dull image of objects with no relief, faithful but colorless. Everyone knows that color and light are lost in a simple reflection. The drama, therefore, must be a concentrating mirror which instead of weakening, concentrates and condenses colored rays, which makes of a mere gleam a light, and of a light a flame. Then only is the drama acknowledged by art. The stage is an optical point. Everything that exists in the world, in history, in life, in man, should be and can be reflected therein. But 
under the magic wand of art, unquote. In 1827, Hugo's wife reported that the preface exploded like a declaration of war against received doctrine and provoked battles in the newspaper. Those hostile to it attacked everything in it, both its ideas and its style. Its defenders were no less fiery in their attacks. Young people declared themselves energetically in favor of the theater's independence, and the preface to Cromwell became their rallying sign. That is the backstory to the Battle of Ernani. Now let's get back to the action. Word had spread that Hugo's new play, Ernani, violated the classical unities, mingled the tragic and the comic, and contained unseemly emotion in the form of repulsive groans of anguish which should be heard nowhere but in a hospital. <laughs> to defend the Comédie Française against this desecration, the classicists came out in force. But the preface to Cromwell had succeeded in raising an army of young romantics who had come to the play's defense. The theater manager had agreed to admit 500 of Hugo's friends for free. So, to identify them, Hugo distributed slips of red paper stamped with the word hierro, Spanish for iron and suggestive of a sword. Hierro was a reference to the battle cry that begins Hugo's Oriental Six, a poem the young romantics would have known by heart. So, you all now have your own invitations to a romantic revolution in Hugo's handwriting. Waiting in the wings, Hugo could look out upon this divided audience that represented, in the words of the poet Gautier, two systems, two parties, two armies, or even two civilizations. Hugo would later reflect that when the curtain was being raised, he felt so exposed and vulnerable, it was as if the skirt of his soul were being lifted up. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. The classicist rules were violated with the very opening line, bringing loud hoots and hisses from the audience. In the second scene, the old hero, Ernani, cries, old man, go and be measured for your coffin and leave us in peace. And the romantics saw their own sentiments reflected in his words. They stomped their feet with such enthusiasm, it seemed that the theater might not stand. One account of events says there were fist fights. Objects and insults were thrown. Threats were made. The play was interrupted repeatedly. But as the play progressed, Hugo, with his magic wand of art, gained upon the audience. Agnes Robinson says, quote, genius, love's young dream, and the delight of beauty are magic powers against which no politics or principles prevail. The fourth act finished in a thunder of applause. The fifth act was a triumph such as the theater has seldom witnessed." Unquote. Let's dwell for a moment in that triumph. Prior to Ernani, Hugo had found himself faced with constant money cares, and when the play debuted, he was left with only 50 francs in his pocket. Before the fourth act ended, he was told that someone wished urgently to speak to him. He went outside to find a publisher waiting, who offered him 6,000 francs on the spot for the right of printing the play. Hugo wanted to defer the discussion until the next day, but the publisher said, quote, at the second act, I thought of offering you 2,000 francs. 
at the third, 4,000. I offer you 6,000 at the fourth, and I am afraid if I wait till the fifth act, I shall be offering you 10,000, unquote. <laughs> Hugo kindly accepted the offer. Do you recall Hugo's adolescent declaration, I wish to be Chateaubriand or nothing? Well, the morning after the play's debut, he found, on waking, the following letter. I saw, sir, the first representation of Ernani. You are aware of my admiration of you. My vanity is attached to your lyre. You know for what reason. I am departing, sir, and you are arriving. I recommend myself to the recollection of your muse. A pious glory should pray for the dead. And it was signed, Chateaubriand. I get chills. <laughs> Hugo had aroused the fervent support of a legion of romantic loyalists who would be known as Hugo Latras, Hugo idolaters, or as Ernanists. I must tell you about a few of the men in this colorful cast of characters. There was, oh, I forgot to share that with you. Théophile Gautier, mentioned before, who gave up a career in painting and switched to poetry because he had read Hugo's Les Orientales, a collection of poems inspired by the Greek War of Independence. There was the writer Petrus Borel, who could recite long passages of the preface to Cromwell by heart. There was the artist Joseph Bouchardy, who had memorized all, five, all of the parts of all five acts of Ernani. I couldn't find a picture of him. And my personal favorite, Gerard de Nerval, who had adapted Hugo's story, Han d'Islande, for the stage, and afterward could often be found at a restaurant called the Petit Moulin Rouge, drinking seawater from a skull to which a brass drawer handle had been screwed, because that's what the character Han did. <laughs> I don't have room for that in my suitcase. It was trouble to get it here, so if anyone wants it, just come ask me. <laughs> In Toulouse, a young man fought a duel in honor of Ernani and was killed. In Vannes, a corporal on dying left these words in his will. Here, is, here lies a man who believed in Victor Hugo. Change it to woman, and I hereby authorize that as my own epitaph. Despite the unquestionable success of the opening and Hugo's growing army of supporters, the battle would continue for many weeks. All the reviews were unfavorable. It became fashionable for the classicists to go to the play and either turn their back to the stage, make a show of reading the paper, or leave the play mid-performance, slamming the door behind them. A variety of parody plays were staged throughout the city. Hugo even received death threats, and one night came home to find a bullet hole through his window. But the play's long run of performances to an enthusiastic public and the enduring success of the Romantic Revolution would prove that in this battle, Hugo was the victor. I know puns are completely at odds with the spirit of this lecture, but I'm not going to apologize for that one. Although when I told my dad, I, whom I call a pathological punster, that I was including that, he said, Hugo, girl. That one, 
that one needs to be apologized for. <laughs> Romanticism would liberate the artist from the confining dogmas of classicism. It would emphasize the importance of the individual, both in the themes that artists could now take on and in their newfound freedom of expression. They no longer needed to conform to strict rules of decorum or to painstakingly avoid taboos. But neither in rejecting the grand and stilted themes of classicism did they resign themselves to naturalism with its cynical presentation of life as ordinary, directionless, and devoid of spiritual meaning. Writer G.K. Chesterton has a beautiful essay on Hugo in which he calls him a man who finds meaning in everything. I'm going to share a lengthy passage from this essay that, I, that explains what he meant by that, but also that I think is pure poetry of its own. We all know what are the uninteresting, the inevitably uninteresting parts of fiction. We all know what parts of a novel to skip. We skip the description of the country where the hero was born, with its flat, sandy waste made ragged with fir trees and tumbling towards the west into low, discolored hills. We skip the long account of the heroine's room, with its quaint, old, carved furniture and the portraits on the wall, dim with age but gorgeous with ancient color. We skip the account of the hero's great-grandfather, who was so manly and honorable a lawyer in a country town. Now, the greatest and boldest tribute that can be paid to Hugo, the greatest and boldest, perhaps, that can be paid to any novelist, may be stated in the form that it is not safe to skip these passages in a novel by Victor Hugo. In all other novelists, in other novelists, not all, we know another one that could be applied to. In other novelists, all the details are dead. In Hugo, they're all alive. In Hugo, we may be certain that the sandy waste will, maybe, will be made typical in some wild way of the type and tribe of characters which give it birth. We may be certain that the furniture in the room will be packed with symbolism like an antique chapel. There will be something significant and psychological about the three-legged stool. This is no exaggeration. In this sense, it is literally true that there is not a dull line in Hugo. For to him, there is neither a large, nor a, small, a large thing nor a small one. He has abolished the meanest and most absurd of all human words, the word insignificant. He knows that it is impossible for anything to signify nothing. Chesterton, if you want another Chesterton recommendation after the lecture, by the way, ask me. Chesterton, in his discussion of Hugo, has drawn out a theme that I am keen to make in this lecture. So I'm going to make it explicitly. Romanticism freed artists to find the ideal in the everyday. In the words of Graham Robb, it proved that one could live in the prosaic modern world without emotional compromise. It took itself and taught us all to take a romantic outlook on reality. Part one of our tour is complete. So I want to stop for a moment and say why I have taken you to the Battle of Ernani and its backstory. Before I do, I want to quickly acknowledge something that might seem strange. I've been talking about Ernani for 20 minutes and yet have said almost nothing about the play itself. 
my apologies to the people who so kindly said they read the play in preparation for this talk. <laughs> it is not the plot of the play that's important for my purposes here. It's what it meant for the Romantic movement. Just as the preface to Cromwell stole the stage from that play, the Ernani stage was stolen by the battle that surrounds it. So, back to the question of why I've taken you to this epic moment in literary history. First, when I heard the story of Ernani, I was astonished by it. I was stunned that people had been stirred to rioting, brought to blows, and driven to duels by a matter of aesthetic principle. That feels many worlds away from our own. Second, what had stirred them to action and demonstration were feelings of reverence, idealism, and hero worship. Their descent on the Comédie Française may have had the character of an attack, but it was not about destruction. It was about artistic liberation, ennobling the individual spirit, and finding beauty and meaning not over and above everyday life, but deep within the very fabric of it. It then occurred to me that the character of this romantic rebellion was inspired and guided by the very thing they were defending. Romantic art had helped fashion these rebels into romantics. That, I think, is why the works of Hugo created the Hugo Latras and the Hernanis, and why a stilted Parisian theater became a literal battleground. The Romanticists did not depend on antiquity, legend, or the Bible to achieve a grandeur of theme. Their stories wove the everyday with a fervent pursuit of values. And consequently, those who are inspired by them learn to, find, to take a value-oriented approach to their own daily existence, to find the ideal within the everyday, to live in the prosaic world without emotional compromise, to take a romantic outlook on reality. Thus, a young poet would spend two days in a tree, glimpse a skinny-legged old man playing with his cat, and describe himself as dizzy with literary glory. Thus, fellow artists would, from sheer enthusiasm, memorize sections of the preface to Cromwell or the entirety of Ernani. Thus, an army of young romantics would descend on the Comédie Française, prepared to defend their idol or to die fighting a duel in his name. And thus, on the centenary of Hugo's birth, another young poet would publish a stirring 20-page poem in tribute to Hugo and his play, titled Un Soir à Ernani, An Evening in Ernani. And that's what brings us to the next stop on our tour. I'll get, I'll get to it by way of a personal aside. Several summers ago, I was staying for a few weeks in a little cottage in the Cotswolds. Every day, I would spend some time reading in the garden, and one of the books I had brought with me was a biography of Edmund Ross Stand called The Man Who Was Cyrano. Most of you here have probably heard that Cyrano de Bergerac was Ayn Rand's favorite play three times over, and if you haven't read it, you absolutely must. Hugo and Ross Stand are among my personal pantheon of literary gods. And I'm not alone, they were Ayn Rand's too. But it wasn't until I read Lloyd's biography that I learned Ross Stand had written a tribute to Hugo. I'll return to Ross Stand's tribute in a moment. But first, let me say, 
that like Hugo, Rostand had found himself at odds with the literary spirit of his age. Naturalism with its blunt realism, spiritless practicality, and cynical point of view was edging out romanticism in the theater. High ideals, tender sentiments, and poetic expression were made to seem ridiculous and contrived. Art, Rostand's contemporaries believed, was meant to capture real life in all its prosaic pointlessness. And like Hugo before him, Rostand would put up a valiant fight to preserve the spirit of romanticism. One of Rostand's first forays into the literary world was a submission to a contest sponsored by the Academy of Marseille, which, at the age of 19, he won. His essay was titled, Two Novelists of Provence, Honoré Durfé and Émile Zola. His theme was that these two writers represented the two extremes of the French spirit. Zola, the Gallic spirit, which was characterized by cynicism and coarse humor. Durfé represented a formal, idealistic refinement that lapsed into artificiality. We should hear in this dichotomy echoes of the naturalism and classicism that Hugo had rejected. Like Hugo before him, Rostand and his work would yearn instead for real life transformed by idealism. In Rostand's time, the phrase fleur bleu, blue flower, was used to designate someone starry-eyed and sentimentally romantic. Sue Lloyd says, Rostand came to see it as his mission in life to sow the small blue flowers of idealism amongst the materialism and cynicism of his own generation. This ambition can be seen reflected in his poem, Le Contrebandier, from the collection Les Mousardies, The Daydreamers. Le Contrebandier, The Smuggler, is a dreamlike narrative in which Rostand encounters an old man on a donkey about to cross from Spain into France. Suddenly, the donkey bucks and ancient armor and weapons spill from the man's sacks. Rostand recognizes him as Don Quixote. Don Quixote has learned that France is in desperate need of him and his chivalrous idealism. But he finds he cannot cross the border alone. He needs an accomplice. Rostand is hesitant, doubting his ability to help. He says he only knows how to sing foolish songs and pick wildflowers. Don Quixote's meaningful reply is, one can pass off a lance in a bouquet of flowers or hide a signal in a song. I take this sentiment to signify that real life can and ought to be shaped by art. Art is not meant to be idle escapism. It has the power to help shape our deepest values and sense of purpose. As the poem proceeds, Rostand agrees to be Don Quixote's accomplice. And the poem ends, this is Sue Lloyd's translation, ever since, in the shadows cooled by a breeze from Spain, involved in my task, amused by the risk, I'm always on the path. I pick bunches of flowers, I walk, I stop, and I sing, and I say that I am a poet, but really, I am a smuggler. Rostand, says Lloyd, was declaring himself a smuggler of the ideal. I don't know if anyone here has seen Ryan Johnson's movie, The Brothers Bloom. It's one I, I really like. But in it, a cloistered heiress named Penelope, played by the beautiful Rachel Wise, is targeted by two conmen. 
She has led such a boring life and felt such a desperate longing for adventure that she begs to join them in their life of crime. That's a little good copy-esque if you've read the Ayn Rand short story. There's an adorable scene in which Penelope says with guileless delight, let's be smugglers. So part of my point here is to say, in our own world marred by vapidness, cynicism, and vulgarity, let's be smugglers of the ideal. There was perhaps no nobler effort to revive romanticism, romanticism on the French stage than Rostand's Cyrano de Bergerac. I have that poster hanging in my home, an original poster from the first staging of Cyrano de Bergerac. Cyrano, as I'm sure most of you know, but dear God, I hope not from the recent movie, is the story of a swashbuckling poet with a magnificent soul and an enormous nose who helps his, his handsome rival to woo the woman that they both love so that she can have her romantic hero both spiritually and physically. But the romantic plot, I think, functions more as a backdrop for the presentation of the great soul of Cyrano, a man who scorns compromise of any kind, who would subdue giants to defend his ideals, who reveres beauty and speaks of it sublimely and who can go to his grave confident that his integrity is perfectly intact. So how would audience, audiences who had come to deprecate sentimentality, to see verse as stilted and out of date, to regard any presentation of ideals as contrived and phony, react to Cyrano, the idealistic sentimental poet? Well, Sue Lloyd calls the debut of Cyrano de Bergerac not only a triumph, but the most unanimous triumph in the history of French theater. Rostand's smuggling was a wild success. Those blue flowers blossomed bountifully. Here is Lloyd's account of what happened. Quote, at the end of act three, ladies threw their gloves and fans on stage <laughs> and gentlemen their opera hats. But this was nothing to the uproar when the curtain finally fell at the end of act five. After Coquelin, the actor who had played Cyrano, had taken 40 curtain calls, the curtain was simply left up. The audience just could not bear to leave. Edmond's play had reawakened the traditional spirit of heroism and chivalry. Cyrano de Bergerac continued to play to full houses for 500 performances without a break, a theatrical record for any Paris theater." Unquote. After the wild success of Cyrano, Rostand was a hero and a household name. He was invited to speak at his old college, Stanislas, where he gave this inspiriting address. Forgive the rough translation, because it's mine. And imagine these ideas in exquisite, lyrical French. Here is my advice as a poet. Be little Cyranos. If it is dark, grope against the shadow. When something is wrong, cry out madly that it is wrong. Stand up for beauty. Stand up against the crowd. Call back to the dark shore the singing flow of the ideal. That is why I ask you to have panache. Stand tall. Stick out your chest. March and keep in step. Whatever you believe, be proud to believe it. And twirl your mustache even if you haven't got one. Never be afraid to be ridiculous. 
We can make the heels of our ancestors ring even on modern and peaceful sidewalks. And invisible spurs ring best of all. Apparently, several students of Stanislas who went on to fight in World War I wrote to Rostand to say that they carried Cyrano de Bergerac in their rucksacks to inspire them and give them courage. Rostand became so famous that he could not walk the streets of Paris without being accosted by fans. For that, among other reasons, he decided to build his dream home in the quiet Basque country on the Spanish border of France. It was in my little Cotswolds garden, reading Lloyd's biography, that I first learned of this home, which Rostand had called Arnaga. I dropped everything, ran to my computer, furiously typed it into the search, and waited to see whether this home still stood. It does. More on that later. In 1901, just four years after the debut of Cyrano, Rostand became the youngest member ever to be inducted into the Académie Française. In his reception speech, Rostand seized again the opportunity to proclaim a passionate defense of Romanticism. He called on the theater to lift the public. He called it a place where souls side by side can feel that they have wings. He told his audience that words spoken on stage can have the quality of prayer and the power to arouse in people the heroic and noble. He called on writers to rehabilitate passion and emotion, which he regarded as having been devalued in modern times. And he concluded, quote, and that is why we need a theater where, inspiring us with beauty, consoling us with grace, poets, without doing it on purpose, give us lessons for the soul. That is why we need a theater which is not only poetic, but heroic, unquote. Rostand and Hugo were kindred romantic spirits, and many a critic called Rostand the new Hugo. But Rostand himself never aspired to such heights and never accepted the comparison. He regarded Hugo with reverence, not as a peer with whom he could claim spiritual kinship, but as a hero that he worshipped. He, he would have counted himself among the Hugo Latras and the Ernanists. So now let's talk about one of the forms that that worship would take. In 1902, the editor of the French newspaper, Le Galois, reminded Rostand that February 26th would mark the centenary of Hugo's birth. He suggested that Rostand celebrate the occasion with a visit to Ernani, which was not far from Arnaga, and commemorate it with a poem. Rostand liked the idea, and the next day, he and his wife, Rosemont, set off to see the Spanish city. While they were there, a tour guide took them to the study where, he claimed, Hugo had penned his famous play. Rostand knew that in reality, Hugo had only glimpsed this Spanish village for which his play's hero was named when he briefly passed through it as a child. It may have been only a glimpse, but Hugo's experience there was a memorable one. Biographer Graham Robb says that this childhood journey to Spain and back can be counted as one of the great romantic expeditions, not only in the extraordinary incidents of the journey, but above all in its consequences. In 1810, when Hugo was eight years old, his father was a general serving in Spain. Madame Hugo and the general were somewhat estranged, and he was reputed to be squandering money on a mistress 
So she resolved to take her two young sons through the war-torn countryside and bring her husband to his senses. According to Rob, Madame Hugo also saw herself as doing her parental duty by subjecting her sons to this baptism by fire. Rob says in her mind, the trip to Spain would be an invaluable part of Hugo's upbringing if he survived. <laughs> Here is what young Victor Hugo saw and what he took from it. Quote, at the gates of Vitoria, the bleeding limbs and severed head of a bandit leader's nephew had been gathered up and nailed to a crucifix. At Burgos, Hugo saw a procession of lantern-bearing pen penitents escorting a man seated back to front on an ass. He was about to be garroted in the public square. With its scaffold and cathedral, Burgos is the birthplace of Hugo's obsessions, the preservation of the past and the abolition of the death penalty." Unquote. It was also on this journey to Spain that Hugo would discover his passion for architecture. And it was for cities first glimpsed on these travels that he named his plays Torquemada and Hernani. The city of Hernani would become such a symbol of Hugo's achievements that many people, including I read Hugo himself, believed that it had been called Hernani with an E before he endowed it with the H of his own name. That was not in fact the case. The H was always there. But that made the city of Ernani no less sacred to the Hugo Latras like Rostand. As I mentioned, the existence of Rostand's poem, Un Soir à Ernani, was another thing I had not known of until I read Sue Lloyd's biography. So when I learned about it, I made a similar dash to my computer to buy myself a copy. And to my deep disappointment, I learned that it has never been translated into English. I also learned that there was a copy for sale of the French version signed by Rostand himself. That copy now belongs to me. <laughs> One of these days I'll have to bring my growing collection to a conference and set up, set up a pop-up shop of literary masterpieces. So in the ensuing months, I hired a French tutor to help me translate this approximately 20-page, 75-stanza poem line by line. Neither of us has the capability of even coming close to preserving the beauty of the original. That was not our task. I just had to know what it said. <laughs> As it turns out, translating this poem was one of the single most fulfilling experiences of my life. And that is why I must now share some of what it said with you. The opening line of the poem is written not in French, but in Basque. I've already butchered Spanish and French, so I'm not even going to try with Basque. And it translates to, what is that village? We are then told that Rostand has addressed this question to a somber old peasant riding a mule along a mountain ridge as he points to a village down in the valley below. Then Rostand says, and again, bear with my translation and absorb the spirit of it. But I knew his answer in advance. I knew by what trisyllabic and proud word, which would suddenly bring glory to the air, this haughty old shepherd was about to answer. It was only a pious thrill that I sought to give myself in this place, through this man, at this hour, saying that name that touches you as if with so many wings. 
enthusiasm was in my soul. I had need to hear this name that I knew, and this name that I was sure to hear, I was waiting for it. I was pale with anticipation. I had a chill down my spine and tears in my eyes when, made grander by the accent of this old man and by the majesty of the valley twilight with something fierce about the R that vibrated like an iron maquila with much languor in the I and on the A this guttural and singing sonority that prolongs and widens and solemnizes and slowly swinging a vowel like a censer, the name Ernani rolled in the gold of the evening. If Lamartine was dizzy with literary glory after glimpsing his hero, it seems as if Rostand, gazing upon this sacred spot, could almost die right there. Later in the poem, Rostand is explicit about what it is that makes this place holy. At the foot of this mountain slope is the obscure village with a famous name famous for sharing its name with Hugo's great drama in verse that because of its meaning for the romantic movement had so deeply touched Rostand's soul. Ernani, the city, says Rostand in the poem, is just an old Hidalgo village whose brown tile cap has been plumed by Victor Hugo. Its people never heard the clarion call that rang across the set of its namesake on the stage. But for Rostand, the city has been sanctified with meaning, the meaning lent to it by Hugo. And Rostand has come here intoxicated with the hope of being blessed by the breezes that blow through Ernani. This next part is one of my very favorites, and it made me laugh out loud. That wonderful laughter of delight with not a trace of derision. Rostand describes how he stands a moment on the threshold of Ernani, so dazzled by love and respect that he almost dares not enter. Then he's struck by something he sees as the village watchman walks by with his stick. He cannot believe his eyes. The watchman is wearing a black beret inscribed with two gold letters, V-H. Rostand stops him and asks with that same eager anticipation of an answer he thinks he already knows what these two letters stand for. And the watchman responds, Via de Ernani. Not what he was expecting. Later in the poem, Rostand expresses regret that when Hugo was exiled from his native land, he did not come to Ernani. This city, he says, is marked with Hugo's magic figure. It no longer belongs to Spain. It no longer belongs to its king. It is Hugo's. Rostand sees a bare, rocky promontory that looks to him Hugo-esque, and he imagines Hugo himself lording over the land on that rock against a backdrop of birds or angels. At another point in the poem, Rostand walks the streets of Ernani and dreams the details of Hugo's childhood voyage. It's a phrase he repeats throughout the poem, almost like an incantation. Je rêve les détails du voyage. I dream the details of the voyage. And in his imagination, he plays out vividly all he knows about the travels of young Victor Hugo. He reflects on how Madame Hugo and her children in their carriage at one point joined the convoy of the treasury, and as such were guarded by a cavalcade of watchmen. 
God, says Rostand, was having fun with these fools who thought they were protecting a chest full of money when really they were guarding a marvelous child whose soul was full of stars. Later, Rostand is offered a ride by a boatman to an island of historic import, but he has no interest. He only wants to see Ernani for, I've done my best to capture the spirit of his moving words, it is there that between the beams of a street where one drinks dark wine from bottles under a long, narrow band of indigo, Spain met Victor Hugo. Rostand calls himself a pilgrim who has come solely to worship in the place of this great encounter. He dreams the details of the voyage. He pictures what he calls that touching moment of grace when Madame Hugo put her arms around young Victor and said gently in a half-slumbering voice, do you see, that is Ernani. Little knowing that in that moment the germ was planted that would someday become a masterpiece. Rostand then pauses to marvel over how when a mother cradles her child's face and looks deep into his eyes, she may be holding a whole world in her hands. As night begins to descend on the city, Rostand enters through the stone portal of a little church, and he prays that on this February evening, the centenary of Hugo's birth, this place of worship will satisfy his soul, since he cannot go to the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Then, deeply moved, he goes out under the always beautiful sky, saying to himself, Master, genius, Hugo, smile, father of a century, on your sons of an hour. Give us the courage we need to work after you. Take your hand for a moment from your temple and bless our forehead and our heart. Persuade us that our work is everything and tell us to sing until everyone understands. As the poem comes to a close, it is time for Rostand to return home, and he whispers under his breath, must such a day come to an end? As he leaves this sacred city, he describes himself as leaving Hugo as one passes out of a dream. Anyone who has finished one of Hugo's novels will well remember that feeling. Then we are left with this final wonderful exchange. As Rustan passes under wrought iron balconies of a narrow street, a man stops him to say in a proud, gruff voice, Signor, it is here in that old street that Urbuda was born, the man to whom Fran Francois I gave his sword. And Rostand replies, it is here in this old street that the great drama was born to which Le Cid would have given his. That calls for a toast of seawater from a skull cup. How often have you been witness to such sublime hero worship? In this poem, Rostand's tribute to Hugo takes so many forms. There are his explicit words of worship of the genius, the soul full of stars, the child who held whole worlds in his little head. There's the manner of that worship, which reflects so well the style of literature and sense of life that Victor Hugo inspired where one seeks the spiritual meaning in everything. 
and there is the voice of Hugo that resounds in his head, calling him to carry on his sacred work of crusading for romanticism, of singing until everyone understands. The second part of our journey is complete, so I want again to pause and reflect on what we ought to take from it. First, we can see how Rostand has carried on Hugo's romantic mission. Like Hugo, he rejects both naturalistic cynicism and classicist artificiality in favor of an artistic style that finds idealism within the realities of life. Like Hugo, he believes that art can give us lessons for the soul, can help to shape our deepest values and profoundest sense of purpose. Like Hugo, he sees no conflict between sincerity and sentimentality, or between realism and beauty. And like Hugo, he wrote works characterized by reverence, grandeur, and belief in the sublime potential of man. But there's something more specific from this section that I want to stress. I think Ansoir à Hernani shows us more powerfully than almost anything else I know can how romanticism gives us license to love. The culture as it is today runs the danger of leaving us spiritually crippled. Sarcasm and satire are seen as the height of cleverness. What values we find at stake in art are often superficial or cliche. Reverence has been abolished and victimhood enshrined. Sentimentality is treated with suspicion or worse, derision. Our capacity to love runs the danger of being stunted. Rostand's poem does not just pay homage to Hugo and the Romantic movement. It serves as a sublimely inspirational example of what it's like to love deeply, unrestrainedly, proudly, conscientiously, and worshipfully. Rostand's radiant idealism is a force against which sarcasm cynicism, derisions, and superficiality do not stand a chance. And that brings us to the final, very personal part of this journey, because Rostand and his poem, Ansoir à Hernani, inspired a pilgrimage of my own. As I mentioned before, the home Rostand built for himself in the Basque region of France still stands, and it does so gloriously. In October of 2019, just in time, I decided to travel there for five days by myself. I found a little vacation village that was practically on the property of Arnaga itself, and I booked my stay. The scale's not obvious there, but it was so close I could almost convince myself I was Rostan's guest. When the time came, I flew across the world, drove by night to the little village of Combo-les-Bains, and then waited impatiently for the entrance of Arnaga to open. As I stood outside the gate, I, like Rostand, on the threshold of Ernani, was so dazzled by love and respect that I almost dared not enter. And I, like Rostand, had a chill down my spine, a tear in my eye, and enthusiasm in my soul as the gate opened and I walked in. Let me take you on a brief tour of just some of the marvelous things that I saw in my three full days of ex ex exploration. Yes, three days. When I showed up on the third day, one of the docents approached me to ask with astonishment, you're back again? <laughs> the site is often visited, 
but more for the majestic gardens that have earned it the name Little Versailles than for its relationship to Rostand. Having someone go there and read every plaque and explore every corner was apparently an uncommon sight. If any of you are friends with me on Facebook or connected me with me in any way on social media, you've probably seen this photo. This is the first moment that I stood in front of Rostan's home, and I was, as you can probably tell, very happy. Inside, I was welcomed by this wonderful photograph of Rostand, sporting that mustache we are all, ca all called upon to twirl, even if we haven't got one. I saw the desk at which Cyrano de Bergerac was written, and a bronze cast of the hand that penned it. I saw a chair from the set of Cyrano's original staging, on which the great Coquelin once sat that is the most tempted I've ever been to break the rules. I really wanted to sit in that chair. <laughs> Coquelin, who had taken 40 curtain calls at the first performance and who would go on to play the part 950 times across the span of his career. In the great room, so spectacular on its own terms, I saw a frieze that depicts a scene from a poem by Hugo. I saw the sword that Rostand was presented and the gloves he wore when he was inducted into the Académie Française, where he made that speech meant to revive the spirit of romanticism and calling on the theater to offer lessons for the soul. I saw busts in the garden of Rostand's heroes. Shakespeare, Cervantes, creator of that legendary smuggler of the ideal, and, of course, Victor Hugo. And I saw this, maybe the most transcendent spectacle I've ever witnessed. The view from his wife Rosemond's window. Makes me cry. The design of Rostand's home and his gardens were planned meticulously by Rostand himself. You can see the plans at Arnaga, and I can feel his soul in them. Countless people I've shown this photo to thought at first that it was a painting and then at least that it was heavily filtered and photoshopped. It is, in fact, a picture I hastily snapped on my iPhone. The beauty is all in the sight itself. It was as I sat in the Café Cyrano on the main street of Combo-les-Bains, still working on my translation of the poem, that I first read those words, Je rêve les détails du voyage. It was now time for me to do the same, and to follow in Rostand's footsteps as he had followed in Hugo's. I drove to Ernani. The Ernani that welcomed me looked little like a brown-capped Hidalgo village, the one Rostand would have seen in the 19th century. It was instead a bustling little city. But that did nothing to undermine my excitement walking its streets. I too drank dark wine from a bottle under a narrow band of indigo on the spot where Spain met Victor Hugo. At one point, I went into a little toy shop to buy a souvenir for my kids, and using Google Translate, I tried to talk to the proprietor in Spanish. She looked at me a little puzzled, but she figured out what I meant. It was only later, as I walked the streets and saw signs with a disproportionate number of Gs, Ks, Xs, and, uh, and Zs, that I realized the native language of Arunani is not Spanish, it is still Basque. So now, when I reflect on my travels there, I have only one regret. 
that I did not stop some old man, probably not riding on a donkey, and ask him to say in his sonorous Basque accent the name of Ernani. I absolutely would have done it if I'd thought of it. But it was on my way home from Ernani that I experienced what would become one of the greatest highlights of my pilgrimage. I was driving down the highway when I saw a sign for a city that sounded familiar. I thought, I have a vague recollection of reading that name in Rostand's poem. So I pulled over to investigate. I took out the poem, scanned through the pages, and found that there was indeed a reference to that city and to the Chateau d'Ertubi. Rostand imagines the Hugos arriving at this castle, which he describes as wearing an armor of slate, continuously assaulted by the torrential rains. I looked it up. It was still there. Visitors were allowed, and it was open. So I started driving there immediately. I arrived to this majestic scene, and mine was the only car in the parking lot. I had to knock at the door to get the tour guide to let me in. She took me on a tour during which she told me the history of the Chateau d'Ortubie, including that it had been in the same family since 1341. The current owner is the 24th in the family line. I mentioned to the tour guide that I had been brought there by Rostand, who referred, it, referred to it in his poem, Ansoir à Ernani. She told me that her children had recently memorized all of Cyrano's immortal nose speech, but she said she'd never heard of the poem and didn't know about the reference, and she wasn't sure the owner of the chateau did either. She took pictures of the poem, and she promised she would write to me after she spoke to the owner to let me know. So a few weeks later, I received a letter that said, Dear Lisa, I had the pleasure to show you around the Chateau d'Ertubi last week. You mentioned Edmund Rostand's poem and that our castle was mentioned in it. I passed the message to the owner, and he admitted that he wasn't aware of it. So now you are a part of the guided tour. In the small drawing room is what I attach as a picture. I tell the visitors about a passionate American who came to the castle thanks to Edmund Rostand and let us discover something special. That was one of the great literary thrills of my life, and it's the perfect place to close the circle of this lecture. In What is Romanticism, Rand says that when reason and philosophy are reborn, literature will be the first phoenix to rise out of the ashes. But I have to also wonder what's possible in reverse. How much can reading romantic literature help create the conditions for a cultural renaissance? And how much power does it have to single-handedly transform our individual souls? Year after year, I have taught my eighth graders Les Miserables and 93 by Victor Hugo, and The Romantics and Cyrano de Bergerac by Ross Stand, among other literary romantics. And it is not hyperbole when I say that I do bear witness to a transformation within them. There might be a range among them in the thoroughness or the staying power of that transformation, but somewhere within them, every one of them carries away a romantic sense of life. They have, so to speak, Rostand and Hugo in their rucksacks. This year, as an end-of-school activity, I asked my graduating eighth graders to write reflections on what they had learned from literature. Then I let them volunteer to share what they had written. It was breathtaking. Many of them moved me to tears. 
Hand after hand was raised for more than 20 minutes. Here are a few highlights. From Cyrano, I learned that wit is always the sharpest blade. From Dr. Stockman, I learned that you shouldn't wear your best trousers when you fight for your ideals. From Rourke, I learned that every man should be the architect of his own life. That's good. From the, <laughs> from the bishop, I learned that even if someone has been neglected by all of society, it only takes one person to restore kindness in their heart. And from, from Jean Valjean, I learned that the crack of a whip will not stop a man from sinning, but kindness can. And then, if this experience were not already moving enough, I called on one boy and he said, from Miss Van Dam, I learned how to appreciate literature. Forgive me if that story sounds self-aggrandizing. That's not why I told it. It had to be shared because that trip around the classroom table echoes so many elements of the journey that we just took in this talk. Romantic literature has, at least in some small way, turned them into romantics. My classroom story also sets the context for this bold assertion. I believe exposure to romantic literature is indispensable to a full human life, especially right now. It doesn't mean it's a form of art you have to continuously seek throughout your lifetime, although it sure as hell can't hurt. But in my view, it does mean that no school curriculum is complete without it. And in my view, it does mean that if you were deprived of it, you have a lot to gain by making up for the loss. And while on its own, romantic literature cannot bring about the world we want to see, I think it can be a powerful force for creating the right cultural conditions for a renaissance. I offer as evidence the story of another teenager the romantics transformatively affected. In her introduction to 93, Ayn Rand says, quote, I discovered Victor Hugo when I was 13 in the stifling, sordid ugliness of Soviet Russia. One would have had to have lived on some pestilent planet in order to fully understand what his novels and his radiant universe meant to me then and mean now. And that I am writing an introduction to one of his novels in order to present it to the American public has for me the sense of the kind of drama that he would have approved and understood. He helped to make it possible for me to be here and to be a writer. If I can help another young reader to find what I found in his work, if I can bring the novels of Victor Hugo to some part of the audience he deserves, I shall regard it as a payment on an incalculable debt that can never be computed or repaid." Unquote. Much of my life has been dedicated to carrying on that mission to getting the worlds wrought by the romantics into students' hands and minds and hearts. In our present world, which can sometimes feel so dominated by cynicism, fear, antagonism, and hopelessness, we can be reoriented and recharged by immersing ourselves in romantic literature, not as an escape, but as a reminder of what really matters. It is a reminder to seek the ideal in the everyday, to fervently, unreservedly revere, to give yourself license to love. The great romantic authors combine deep intellectual insight 
with pure, unapologetic benevolence and optimism. And that's what we so desperately need. Romantic literature reminds us to climb a tree just to catch a glimpse of your hero, to drink seawater from a skull cup, to twirl your mustache, even if you haven't got one, to sow the blue flowers of the ideal, to recall that you can pass off a lance in a bouquet of flowers or hide a signal in a song, to hold a child's face and see whole worlds in your hands, to find meaning in everything, and to sing until everyone understands. So I will close by saying, Iero, my friends, let's be smugglers. Sorry, I'm so, thank you so much for that reaction. And I'm so distracted by, wait, are you the one who owns that? You are the one who owns that. Okay, so I once, I, I saw that there's somebody who owns this sign. It's an original sign, right? That says, closed for the funeral of Victor Hugo. All the shops and, and the whole city shut down because it was, and I, I think I posted on Facebook a desperate quest for somebody to find one of those for me because I want to own it so badly, but I couldn't remember who owned it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so did the price go down over the course of my lecture? <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's talk. <laughs> oh, man, now I have to focus on questions. <laughs> that was a wonderful ending. Thank you. <laughs> to be surprised by oh, someone yeah. in the audience. Um, I want to say that the tour can continue, and it has for Harris and myself. We have joined your romantic tour early on, and you held us through the pandemic. Mm. And I was rude enough during your lecture to look up read with me with yeah. Lisa, and I wish you would tell people about this opportunity. Yeah. Um, because it's, you bring us through the romanticism, and you don't just read the books, you do what you've done here for thank, us. Thank you so much, Ellen. Um, yeah, so if you don't know already, I try to make it as widely known as possible. If you don't all, if you uh, need guidance reading romantic literature, there's an app for that. Um, we, with my partner Joseph here, um, we've created a, a, an app called Read With Me. Um, he's going to make disclaimers about not being a um, programmer and that app not being perfectly functional. But you can now get all the content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever podcast platforms there are. But I have acquired quite a catalog of works that I guide you through step by step and try to help you derive the spiritual, emotional, and intellectual meaning out of it, not in the dry way that everything was taught to me when I was a kid. Um, so that is a resource available to you. And I'll, uh, one other thing, since I put such an emphasis on Hugo, 
Um, Joseph at readwithmesalon.com, correct? Readwithmesalon.com. You can sign up for a project I did last year, which was a chapter a day of Les Miserables. I think that is a fantastic way to enter Hugo's universe because a chapter a day is a modest commitment. It was Robert Mayhew who first pointed out to me that the, that the book happens to fall into 365 chapters. So you can do a, uh, a chapter a day and finish the book. Most chapters are two to five pages, and then occasionally you'll happen upon one that's 30 and be surprised that it's going to consume more of your day than you had planned. But, um, but anyway, I did that, led that project last year and wrote brief commentaries for each chapter. Very brief, not adding a lot of, but just helping you derive the meaning out of each chapter. So you can now sign up to have that delivered daily into your email inbox. You don't have to do it January 1st, and New Year starts every day. Um, so you can start at any time and just commit a little bit of time to Hugo. And you have The Romantics by Edmund Rostand. And Cyrano de Bergerac. Yes. Mm -hmm. And The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And 93. So, yeah, there's a lot there. Hi. We, we have a question from online. Oh, okay. Uh, Ayn Rand writes in the Romantic Manifesto that bootleg romanticism is a phenomenon where artists try to smuggle in serious values mm. in their work, uh, but with plausible deniability. Does this relate in any way to Rostand smuggling, or is that a different phenomenon? No, <laughs> totally different idea. I, for, I should have made that connection so I could differentiate them. But no, Rostand's, and, and Rostand didn't actually coin that phrase. It was Sue Lloyd, his biographer, who called him a smuggler of the ideal. Um, and I just love, I have a bracelet with smuggler of the ideal inscribed on it now. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of sentimental, in case you hadn't noticed. But um, So th the idea was just that his world was becoming very cynical and uh, materialistic in the worst of senses and naturalist, and he needed to be the one to help infuse, re-infuse the culture with beauty and reverence for ideals. Um, yes? Hi, I know Jean-Jacques Rousseau said about philosophy that it would make any man better, mm. whether he was a cobbler or a doctor or a physicist or a bricklayer. Oh, yeah. And I know you shared that sentiment when it comes to literature. I remember mm. you said at an Ayn Rand Center UK event, yeah. you said that about engineers and I think people in tech. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that to really, in, really concretize it because mm -hmm. I feel like I really agree with that, but I don't even know how he would even explain something I like that. I completely sympathize with the challenge. I think that was part of my goal with this lecture, is to illustrate it in a way that makes you feel the power, as opposed to, not as opposed to, I tried to include a little bit of explicit formulation of what that power is at the same time, but it is, I think, something that's difficult to capture in words. So um, one thing, it's a big topic, but I'll try to address some aspect of it briefly. I think of um, education as involving a set of intellectual disciplines, unique ways of looking at the world. So in, in math, there's one approach to conceptualizing the world that we're using. In science, a different way. And in literature, 
another way still. So I, I think of the subjects as being broken down in that sense, the, the, the sort of traditional set of subjects as each one represents a way of looking at the world that's essential for, to have full cognitive powers, not, not delimited cog cognitive powers, but full, full cognitive powers to understand and conceptualize the world. So that's the starting point, but then what is it that literature does in particular? A whole lot of things, but, but a big part of it is, um, I, I like the phrase that I, the long passage from Hugo about a mirror and reflection, that we see reality in all its details. What art allows us to do is to have sort of this x-ray vision that lets us go straight to essentials. And what that allows us to do simply, it's a, at first it's simply a pure pleasure to experience a world where there's no, nothing extraneous and everything is focused and concentrated on a certain purpose. But the other thing it does is help you see that that is true of the real world too. There's a lot of clutter that you have to see beyond and get around to get to essences and to appreciate values and to see them reflected in the world around you. But I think of literature as exceptional training um, for that ability. So I gave a lecture a couple of years ago called Literature and the Quest for Meaning. If you haven't seen that, that's another, I know you've seen it, but um, that's another resource to kind of reflect on, on those ideas of what is, the, what is it specifically, I, I apologize, I'm really greedy with time and I never leave enough for questions. <laughs> um, but I'm around for the next two days, and don't be shy about stopping to ask me questions. Um, so does that help as a starting point? But I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. Thank you, and certainly does. Okay. Um, my wife is watching my three young kids in Austria and allowing me to attend here based okay. on the original title of this topic. Oh, no. Okay, come on, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> I'm going to let you ask the rest of your question, but come on, does this not help? <laughs> all right, all right, okay, that was... <laughs> being a romantic can definitely help you in the realm of being romantic. I certainly agree. <laughs> so my, my question is, um, my, I have a five, three, and one-year-old, and hmm. this might not be biologically correct, but I believe they were born a ro aromantic. So mm. as a, not as a teacher, but as a parent, what are some things you've actioned that you found successful in cultivating you, cultivating that, that or mm. extending that? That's a fantastic question. So you feel like they have this tendency already and you want to nurture it. And I mean, one way I'm going to repeat again is to give them great literature. Um, Anne of Green Gables is one of the ultimate child romantics in literature. So there are... Um, that will help encourage that romantic sense of life. From a parenting perspective, just the, the thing I see that makes me cringe is cynicism and sarcasm in parenting. My classroom is a world where sarcasm, I mean, we, we pal around and we, ha we're, we joke with each other and there's a very, very delimited place for sarcasm, but it's really on the margins. It's a place where we're being serious and really getting the value out of things. So I don't think, if this is your goal, that's not going to be your tendency to, um, 
to shut them down with sarcasm against values. I think that's one of the hardest things for kids about schooling, I think, is your love of things gets curbed by fear of being, of being mocked. And what makes you more, more vulnerable than expressing what you love? Expressing what you love it creates a vulnerability for you if people make fun of it, take it away from you. So it's, it's, it's like presenting yourself naked <laughs> when you, it, if you feel, or Hugo's phrase about the skirt of his soul being lifted up. So kids have to get a lot of support for the expression of their enthusiasms and their passions and help creating an environment in which that's not going to be taken away from them. Thank you. Mm -hmm. oh. So I have an admittedly mundane question after awesome. it was a uh, If it's beautiful. biographical, <laughs> ask Shoshana. But no. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, it, it was a beautiful talk that moved my father and I to tears, so, so thank you so much for that. But uh, I, I was wondering, um, do you think the existing English translations for these works are sufficient to really capture mm. their power and their mm. beauty, or do you think like you know, fans of Rostand and Hugo should aspire to read the original French? Yes. Um. <laughs> Uh, there, I, so, you know, I agonized through Ansoir Arnani. It was, it was really difficult for me. Um, I took eight years of French in public school, so you know what I got out of that. Um, <laughs> so I could sort of do it, but it was, I did but I, it didn't, it enabled me to see moments where I could really, really appreciate what's actually being said. But, um, but I couldn't read it with the fun and flow. So if you're able to get to that point, I have no doubt that it would be a vastly superior experience. That said, there are some really good translations of Hugo. And the versions that I link to in the Read With Me app are my personal favorites. Although when I did the chapter a day of Les Miserables, everybody was reading different translations and it was kind of fun to, to compare them. But, I experience Hugo's works in English as extraordinarily powerful, so something has been successfully preserved. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to einram.org.